Okay, we're looking at 2 Samuel chapter 11, 2 Samuel 11. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went down to the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and to eat and drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited him in, and he ate in the presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with his servants of his lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of his servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an uppermost stone on him from the wall, so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had said him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of your servant, king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter trouble you, for the sword now devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord said Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, 
There were two men in a certain city, the one rich, the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had, brought, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who, who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is the word of the Lord. Join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word to us. We pray that it would be like light to us, that it would illuminate for us so that our eyes would be open to see your son, Jesus, and that we would see ourselves just as clearly. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been going through a series called The Portraits of Grace, looking at the stories of unexpected people in Jesus' genealogy. They are the women who are mentioned in a record of names that historically would only include men. Women play a huge role in, bring, in God's plan of salvation. So just look at Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, the genealogy. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and so on. Last week, we learned about Ruth through Pastor Brandon, through Boaz, uh, Ruth bore Obed. And Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David. See, why is Ruth important? Well, because without Ruth, there may not have been a David. And then David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. I wonder if that stood out for you. Solomon by the wife of Uriah. We're going to learn the backstory there. And for us, I, I mean, I hope we've been taught and reminded about how God is so kind and gracious with his people. And if you're a little still unsure about that word grace and what it means and what it looks like in our lives, I hope that today's episode will make it clear for you. Grace is undeserved kindness for deeply flawed people. Grace is undeserved kindness for deeply flawed people. And that's going to be highlighted for us today. And not just um, the deeply flawed people, but how God is still able to work. This is sovereign grace. And perhaps just as shocking is that God's grace would be for us as well. Undeserved kindness from deeply flawed people. What do you think? Do you think it's for us? Let's see what it's all about through the life of David. I've got three points. The first one, the power to pursue desires. Okay? King David, in the history of Israel, he brought it to this high point, a place of settlement and prosperity. 
King David was where he was at because of the covenant promises that God made to Abraham a thousand years earlier. Land, nation, blessing. And now it's all starting to come to realization. And then not just that, God reassured David, we read that earlier in 2 Samuel 7, about the covenant promise that God would make with David to always have a descendant on the throne in promised succession to lead God's people, Israel. So at this point in David's reign, the ark has been brought to Jerusalem, which has become like the headquarters, central, the central city. And he had plans to turn that cloth tabernacle into a stone temple. Like right at this point, everything is going well for David. The world is David's oyster. God is on his side. He is on God's side. It's even to the point that he could send out his army to do battle for him where he didn't have to go. Look at verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. See, this is prosperity. But nothing can, um, can prepare us for what comes next. This is shocking. An unsuspecting woman would become the object of King David's desires. He saw this woman. He sent for her. He had her. She fell pregnant. And she sent word back to him. That's how quickly the action takes place in verses 2 to 5. Bathsheba, her flaw was that she was beautiful, attracting the eyes of this king, but also that she was married. 2 Samuel 11, verse 3. And David sent and inquired about this woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Now, clearly, none of those things were flaws or faults. Bathsheba was a victim of a terrible misuse of power. Now, how could God's chosen leader be like this, right? I mean, wasn't he aware of the spiritual dangers of prosperity? Verse 1 tells us that maybe he wasn't. Prosperity. That has a part to play in why David was the way he was. It's a, it, prosperity creates a dangerous spiritual condition, something that we hardly take notice of. It, it goes like this. Several things happen. First, you work really hard. You think you've uh, um, gotten to a place of prosperity through your hard work, not that you really acknowledge God who had given it to you. It creates this feedback loop, secondly. Your power and your ability, it leads to prosperity, and then your prosperity, it leads to more power. I can do it, therefore, I can have it. For example, with more money, obviously, you have more options, right? More abilities, more powers. Just think about schools for kids. Bad public schools versus good public schools. It depends on where you can afford to buy, right? Then there's good public schools versus private schools. If you could, why wouldn't you send your kids to the very best schools? Wealth has earned you the ability to make choices where you have power to choose from options that most others don't have. That's the feedback loop. And then the third thing about the dangerous conditions of prosperity and power is that they become an end in itself. That's what you want. Power becomes intoxicating. 
there's a saying of the principle, money is a good servant, but a terrible master. It's the same thing with power. Power is a good servant. You can do a lot, but a terrible master. See, it's easy to forget that handling prosperity righteously, that's like the minimum moral standard that God sets for his people. And handling prosperity righteously for God's greater kingdom purposes, that's how we should be handling prosperity and power. That's the ultimate end. And it's easy to forget all that when we allow our desires to go unchecked. That was David's case. He was greatly blessed. He was God's anointed. He was in these favorable, um, uh, prosperous circumstances, but he assumed that his desires were fine. He ignored the spiritual conditions that make for irresistible temptations. There was Bathsheba, most fertile and now most pregnant. What would King David do with his power? Power to pursue desires. Secondly, the power to cover up shame. Look at verse 5. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. We go from the the news of verse 5 to the quick thinking of verse 6. David calls for Uriah. And you're thinking, okay, David's going to have to fess up and tell Uriah about his betrayal. That's the only decent thing to do. But it wasn't so. King knew what he had to do. He had to cover up his tracks. Three attempts. First, David tried to get Uriah to go to his home and spend time with his wife. That didn't work. Verse 10. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servant of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. This is like the ironies of ironies coming out, really brought out here at this point. Here was a man... He wasn't even Jewish. He was a Gentile. He was brought in to be one of the mighty men of David. And he was seen to be more loyal to Yahweh, the um, the the God of Israel, more than the king of Israel himself was. His integrity and honor was so great that he would not indulge himself one little bit in this time of war. Attempt number two then. Verse um, 13, and David invited him and he ate and drank in his presence so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. Uriah the Hittite, this Gentile, he would not allow his inhibitions overtake his loyalties to God, king, and country. And so in desperation, David would try to cover his misdeed by this third and final attempt. Verse 14. 
In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Do you see the wrenching irony here? Uriah was heading back to the battlefield, and David was handing Uriah a message for Joab, Uriah's commander, and that message was literally Uriah's own death sentence. War is dangerous. People die. We've got to look at that last bit, how David has done what he needed to do in his power to take care of the problem. Verse 25, David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him his son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Uriah is gone. David's now able to cover up his shameful deed by bringing Bathsheba into his harem of wives. In three months' time, no one's going to suspect where that baby bump came from. But that last line is haunting, isn't it? But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. One commentator refers to that as the bottom line, literally in the chapter and ironically as well. It was ironic because David was so relieved that he thought he got away with it. And now he doesn't have to worry. And so he says to Job, you don't have to worry either. That's what David said to Job in verse 25. I don't know what your translation says, but on 2 Samuel 11:25, David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter displease you. Right? You see that there? The word that David said, sent and the word that God had, kind of far off there. There is this subtle language of pleasing and displeasing. It's meant to highlight what is a stark contrast the complete opposite assessment between God and David. They're thinking on really different planes here. And this was David, the man after God's own heart. How could God, God's king, his son, his leader, who was so blessed, be the way that he was, right? We're talking about adultery, murder, cover-up, self-justification. This is truly evil. Makes you wonder why God would allow this. And it also makes you wonder why would God just put this all out there in, in the Bible for us to read? Couldn't God just omit this unfortunate incident, right? Perhaps cover it up, cover it up himself. In that way, it won't take away from God's credibility. Indeed, there are some folks in the world who would uh, read this passage, what David does, and say, 
I don't believe in God and religion for this reason. They're just a bunch of hypocrites. They're abusive. It's patriarchal. And the criticisms go on. Sadly, a lot of it is true, and the Bible doesn't try to hide it or cover it up. But what if the criticism, as valid as some of it might be, what if that doesn't disqualify God or dismantle religion? You know what I mean? It's a little odd where someone says, look at all these problems of Christianity, and therefore says, that's why I'm not going to believe in God. I don't have to believe. There's like a jump in conclusions in that kind of thinking. Criticisms can poke holes, yes, but what if the bucket still holds water, right? It's what you want to say in every company meeting. There's someone who complains, and you're saying, fine. What's the alternative then? What are your bright ideas that you can bring to the table, right? And what that really is getting to is that the truth is that someone can criticize, someone can even complain, but can they construct Right? That is, can the critics construct a society that is based on principles and values that lead to flourishing where people can say, I believe and so I'm going to live this way and pass that on and allow, and allow that to endure. For example, what have the atheists, what have the atheists done? They're a powerful and vocal voice criticizing Christianity. Where is Richard Dawkins? What kind of society has he produced? Right? He's a fad. Criticizing the very foundational structures of society that he has benefited from and allowed him to have his voice and influence. And that is not the principles of democracy, but God. What movie is this line from? <laughs> I have neither the time nor the inclination to explain myself to a man who rises and sleeps under the blanket of the very freedom that I provide and then questions the manner in which I provide it. I would rather you just said thank you and went on your way. Otherwise, I suggest you pick up a weapon and stand the post. Does that quote sound familiar? It's from a speech, a famous speech in a movie, Few Good Men, right? I want the truth. No, you can't handle the truth. It's that scene there, right? <laughs> now we have a new fad. Let's criticize power. We'll talk about that later. But yeah, you can criticize, but can you really construct? The Bible doesn't cover up the ugliness of life because God has constructed a world that supports life and flourishing, even if it's messy, and it even accounts for the mess. So yes, on one hand, we should be shocked at what we see with David. But sadly, on the other hand, should we be surprised? If any of us were in David's situation, how would we use our power? Would we do what David did, or would we do the right thing? Now, I'm sure none of us would ever find ourselves in a situation like David. I'm not saying that we're like that. But the underlying spiritual dynamics and temptations, those are the same. How do we use our power? Do we use our power to cover up or seek truth and righteousness? Here are some examples. Are you too proud to say sorry? 
Are you too right to realize that you could be self-justifying? Are you too pained to admit I was wrong? Too unaware that we're all really not wanting to face the guilt and the shame. How do we use our power? See, the Bible's analysis is that it starts with the heart. And there, all of us are the same. The actions and the outcomes, they can come out differently, but the heart's desires are the same. We all need to, want to, cover up. That brings us to our final point, the power to return to the Lord. You know, even at this low point in David's life, he had the sacrificial system to be restored and to have his sins forgiven. God would forgive even that. But what good is this sacrificial system if you don't turn to it, right? David's power to return, it had to do more with God than with David because David thought he could do, take to the grave what he had done to Bathsheba. We call that grace. That's where God is at work. And we need God to work, like we're seeing with David. When God works, two things happen. First, God will not leave you in your sin. He will act to restore you. I mean, isn't that what we want? We want to be restored with God. We want things to be made right in our lives. The, the Lord can, and he must make that happen. It's good. Why would you want to stay in your guilt and shame? It's terrible bondage. This is what the confident fool says in Psalm 49, verse 14. Like sheep, they are appointed for shale. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in shale with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of shale, for he will receive me, Selah. Who do you want to be led by? The good shepherd? or the shepherd of death. God's going to act. He's going to make things right. We want it to be right. But second, how God acts, well, unfortunately, when he gets us to return, it is painful because he has to expose us. When we do something shameful, if we have any decency, we actually try to cover it up, don't we? Why? Because we know that it's wrong and it's embarrassing even though the cover-up is wrong, we, we, we still do it. Would we be able to expose ourselves willingly? Well, usually it's unwillingly. But God will expose David, and it will be painful. It's like, break, it's like fixing a broken bone. I don't know if you've ever had that happen to you, but I broke my, bone, I broke my wrist bone when I was younger. I fell. There was a doctor on the scene, and he started to manipulate my wrist bones, and I was, in, I was screaming in pain, okay? It's not easy. It's very painful, but that's what it takes to heal properly. That would be God's grace at work. He won't leave us, and he's going to restore us, but it's going to be painful. Now, with that, how did the Lord work in David? That's the big question, right? This is genius. This is like such good, riveting literature. God sends Nathan the prophet. He sends David a word through Nathan. And, the, and he tells the king a veiled story. It's a story that sucks the king in. 
and subversively implicates him, right? Two men, one rich and powerful, the other poor and weak. The rich man takes complete advantage of the poor man and unjustly abuses him for no good reason. Verse 5, 2 Samuel 12, verse 5. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. You are the man. Dagger right to the heart. Oh, David was exposed. So fascinating, too, to see this dynamic where you're really proud, so proud that you don't realize your pride, but you see it so clearly in everyone else and someone else, right? That's what Nathan used to work against David and expose him. Now, here's the big question. What would David do in his guilt and shame? He's just out there in the open, fully exposed. What is he going to do? Hide under a rock? Or can you imagine him doing something that the politicians do these days? Right? What do they do? Just flat out denying it. Boldly, too. No, not me. What would David do? Because this would be the crucial difference between life and death. 2 Samuel 12, verse 13. We didn't read this. But this is what David says after Nathan explains everything to David. And so David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And, David, and Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, you have utterly scorned the Lord. The child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. What was the difference between life and death? Confession. Confession really feels like death. That's why God had to bring it out of Nathan, out of David. In that most vulnerable moment when he's fully exposed, God still caused David to do the right thing and confess his sin before the Lord. And, and as we're following the story, we're thinking that's what we need to see, right? We want to see that, where David finally recognizes for himself that he's in the wrong. But the question is, do you want to see that in your own story? You know, maybe God's grace could be working even now, because if it is working through this story, then maybe he is slowly getting us to a place of humility and even confession. David sinned against Uriah and Bathsheba, but he knew supremely that he first sinned against the Lord. And we need to know that that's like what we need to see happen. That's the difference between like good, effective therapy and counseling and biblical redemption. A good counselor will help you and get you to um, a place of peace, perhaps even to be able to forgive others, maybe even make reconciliation happen. In David's case, he had to answer to God first. And it was God who had to be the one to release him. 
confession. It's painful. And it's because there's real wrongdoing before God that your conscience is pierced. And this is what is so sad. So much of the world is carrying around guilt and shame. Some of them are just wrongly trying to deal with it by forgiving themselves, trying to forgive themselves. But all they're doing is hiding it, packing it away deep inside them where they're denying God their maker. And sometimes it's just as tr- what is just as tragic is sometimes people do that because they think that God won't forgive them. We can understand in one sense, confessing wrongdoing. It's painful because there are real consequences as well. There's real loss. Uriah the Hittite was dead. Bathsheba would never get him back. She had to face the pain, the loss, the cost. And she did nothing wrong. And in David's case, his sin... It was high-handed sin. He knew what he was doing. And this is what's crazy. He would not die. But there was a real cost. See, with great sin, there are great consequences. And for David, he knew that he had caused a lot of pain and loss, but not only that, God said, you're going to lose a son. A son would die in his place, right? David lives, but a son dies. Could this be a foreshadow, looking to something forward in the future? So there we have it, the story of David and Bathsheba. It's all about grace. See, one commentator described God's people as those, they succeed in being unfaithful, whereas God succeeds in being faithful. And so the genealogy of Jesus, what we've been going through, and looking at the stories of the women who open us up into the world It's really a documentary of Israel's history of sin and shame. And it raises the question for us, how is God going to accomplish his promises of blessing in a people who refuse to believe them and who fail to comply with them? I mean, if people renege on their word with God, can God do the same thing? And so the genealogy... It's also a history of God's grace, a history of, I mean, it's a track record of God's grace towards his people. See, we see it so emphatically with David. He's the one on whom Israel's history turns, yet he's this king who is so scandalous. A man after God's own heart, gloriously spoken of in the rest of scriptures, and yet he was so deeply flawed. And even with all of that, God would commit to him and keep his promises to his word, keep his word, give him a future and eternal dynasty. This is the scandal of grace. Undeserved commitment. Undeserved commitment. You know where you see that kind of undeserved commitment? You get a glimpse of it in the story, right? With Uriah the Hittite. That's, that's like showing us God's commitment to us as well. Uriah the Hittite's loyalty to David, it was was so beautiful. And that's partly why we don't get Bathsheba named. She is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Because not only was Uriah a, a Gentile included in the history of Israel, 
but he was the righteous, sacrificial lamb who got David to see his own sin at heart. Grace. God is so extravagantly, undeservingly kind and committed to a people who don't deserve it. And if we really believe that, if we really believe in this kind of covenant commitment, which is so powerful, then you know what we'll be able to do? We'll be able to confess sin ourselves. Weaknesses that are deep down. Failures that no one else knows about. We can have open to us the possibility of forgiveness and release and restoration. And so here's a surprising word for us, knowing that. Confession makes us stronger. Confession makes us stronger, not in ourselves, but in him, where we're relying on this salvation, this forgiveness that we're believing is possible. Real forgiveness, it releases us from guilt and shame, and we can now live confidently with God. What's interesting is the world has picked up on this kind of thinking in a slight way. When you look at the, the lives and stories of successful entrepreneurs, because that's what everyone wants to know, how did you do this, right? They share their stories, and there are multiple failures before there's a success. And now it's to the point where employers, they want to see some signs of failure, to see that you can experience life and grow from it and learn and become more confident and resilient. Embrace the mistakes, right? Is how the is how to succeed, and that's how the world puts it. No, that's always been the case with God. Confession of sin and wrongdoing. It's always meant to liberate and empower, not selfishly, but for God. Now, I also want to say one last thing, that if you're a woman, you might read this story, and you still might not be convinced Let me try to put it in modern language so that maybe I can try to connect with some people. There is this glaring, obvious reality that hasn't been said. David and Bathsheba, we're talking about an imbalance in power dynamics, right? We see it in the headlines all too common these days. The powerful male figure and the weak, helpless female victim. The language that we use these days is the oppressor and the oppressed, right? And a lot of that is true. But what we also have to face up to is that the Bible does not hold these categories as final. Okay, Culture can name these categories, oppressor and oppressed, and then think that they're final and so that they make a solution based on these categories. And rebalancing power, sure, with some ways it needs to be done, but carefully, and it's a partial solution. But just to say that all men are the problem and that the patriarchy needs to be dismantled and power over, taken away from the men and given all to the women, the solution was not to demasculate David and empower Bathsheba. Both David and Bathsheba are disgraced. David's at fault, and Bathsheba has to pay the cost. But what if the modern solution wasn't satisfying for Bathsheba? What if just giving Bathsheba some power wasn't redemptive enough for her? See, what was redemptive for Bathsheba was that she had the great privilege of bearing a son who would be king. And if you're a modern woman, 
Even that might not sound satisfying to you. But what if it was satisfying for Bathsheba? What if she knew that it didn't take away her pain and her loss, but it still redeemed her because it made her a part of something far bigger than herself? Something beyond her is what it would need and be required to redeem her. See, Eve would be called the mother of all the, all the living. Sarah, Abraham's wife, she would be called the mother of nations. And Bathsheba, and along with the other women named in the genealogy, they would be called the mother to the king. That's how she was redeemed, and that was good enough for her. And we have this king, this leader, Jesus. What was he like? Well, he would pursue his desires not for himself, but for honoring the Father and loving his people. Would Jesus cover up sin and shame? Yes, but not by sweeping it under the rug, but, but by bearing the cost and consequences upon himself. And Jesus would sure, securely deliver, return God's people back to the Heavenly Father. That's how Jesus would use his power. That's the kind of power we need and the power that we, too, can express. And you know you have it and you've experienced it when you feel thankful relief. Thankful relief. I don't know if you think about your relationship with God and experience thankful relief. It's like when you have this big problem. It's finally solved and you can move on and you can just get on with life in strength and with hope thankful relief in Jesus. So what's it going to take for you to believe that our hearts are not far from David? What's it going to take for us to realize what grace really means? Would we be humble enough to confess before God things that we just don't want to deal with? Know that the grace would safely lead us into the arms of a Savior who we so desperately need. That's what we're going to take part in with the Lord's Supper. That's what's going to help us. Wouldn't you want to experience grace? Well, will you see it work itself out in your lives during this week? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, your Son, the grace of God who has appeared. In Deuteronomy, Moses says, did any people ever hear the voice of a God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? We thank you for Jesus, that we can live, that we can stand in your grace, O God, as your children with great confidence confidence and strength even to be able to face up to our sin and our failures and our weaknesses. And so we pray that you would teach us how to do that so that we would be strengthened and we would be renewed in hope. Pray for your word to do its work in our hearts, deep into us so that we can fully know what grace means. Help us to experience it and may our Lord's Supper time Prepare us for it. Help us to experience it this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.